We are in uh, 1 Corinthians, continuing our study there, and uh, we'll read our text in just a moment, uh, but I, I, I love the holidays, but my favorite holiday, if I'm being honest, is, is not Thanksgiving and not Christmas, but it's a made-up holiday called Name Amnesty Day, and I, I have a purpose for my madness, but I, I want you to turn perhaps to your neighbor on your left, turn to the, your neighbor on the right, not your spouse, but somebody at your table or in your row, if you've got to turn around real quick. Introduce yourself, share your name, and one word or one sentence, not one paragraph, not one page, not your whole life story, but one word or one sentence about who you are. How do you describe yourself? Uh, Go ahead and do that. Take a moment to do that. All right. Well, I hope you'll be able to continue that conversation after the class. Let's go ahead and return our attention to the text. And uh, we'll come back to why I just had you do that. I know some people are introverted and they hate introducing themselves. It's a little bit awkward, but we're going to cross that awkwardness line for just a moment. Uh, Having introduced ourselves, our name, and a a brief word or sentence about who we are, you'll see why I've asked you to do that uh, as we get towards the end of today's lesson. But for now, just keep that in your memory, what you said, uh, in the back of your mind. And we're going to go ahead and go to the scripture reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we'll be covering verses uh, 1 through 11. So 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 11. Let's read God's word. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Amen. Well, Paul has in the previous chapter, as we heard from Kirby last week, pronounced judgment against a member of the Corinthian church. And who who can tell me from their recollection what this person has done to merit the judgment of the apostle Paul? Yeah, incest, right? He's sleeping with his mother-in-law. Uh, And this is an egregious offense. Uh, And so Paul has pronounced a judgment, and he commands the Corinthian church to enact or enforce that judgment 
by doing uh, something to this man? What does Paul instruct the church to do to this man? What's that? Yeah, excommunication is the term we would use. The, the language he uses is he has given, he's commanded the Corinthian church to give him over uh, to Satan, uh, to give the, uh, deliver the offending person to Satan. We call this excommunication. And we, we talked then last week about church discipline and its necessity and its importance and its purpose. And uh, you will remember that part of the, the reason that uh, Paul does this is because it's necessary uh, for the vindication of God's glory. Uh, we spoke of the, the necessity for purifying the church. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, and so you need to cut the leaven out before the sin spreads in the body. And then uh, we spoke of the, the, the hope of the reclamation of the sinner, uh, that you put the person out of the church, you deliver them to Satan, uh, and the hope there is that God, working through that situation, will actually reclaim that sinner such that he might be brought back into the body. And uh, we didn't mention it last week, but we actually see that exact thing happen in Second Corinthians, uh, I think it's chapter 2, where Paul says, you know, basically, you know, that's, that's enough, welcome him back, forgive him. You know, he, he, he wants to be back. He's repented, it seems. Welcome him back into the body of Christ. And so we see then that church discipline, especially in this case, accomplishes all three purposes. Sometimes it doesn't, the sinner is not reclaimed, right? Sometimes the, the sinner is, is just left in excommunication. He never repents. He never returns to the fold. And that's a very sad circumstance situation. But in this particular case, uh, the, the discipline of this individual leads towards uh, his repentance. And it's a, it's a moment of rejoicing for the Corinthian church later. Now, Paul's been talking about biblical sexuality. That's the context of, uh, of the circumstance. He raises this issue of discipline. Uh, we remember that 1 Corinthians is a, a, a circumstantial letter. It's, it's all about uh, various occasions that Paul needs to address as an apostle, issues that have been brought to his attention either in writing or otherwise. And so he's addressing each of these issues. And one of the first issues is this issue of this man uh, who is sleeping with his mother-in-law. And Paul makes the judgment, uh, excommunicate him. Now, in doing so, he's brought up the subject uh, of discipline or judgment in the church. And he's going to return to the issue specifically of biblical sexuality and Christian sexuality uh, a little later. But right now, he kind of takes an excursus uh, to deal with the issue of judgment in the church, not just pertaining to, to the issue of human sexuality, Christian sexuality, but also more generally on matters uh, that affect the body. And so that's what chapter 6 is largely about. It's giving us the, uh, the problem uh, and the, the principle uh, behind making these judgments. So how are Christians uh, to handle conflict in the church. That's the sort of question I want to frame uh, for us as we look at our text. How are Christians to handle conflict in the church? And if you were to look at what the Corinthians were doing based on our reading of chapter 6, what might their answer be to that question? Lawsuits. Lawsuits. That's the solution the Corinthians have. Let's sue one another. I mean, we live in a, a litigious uh, society. I think that's fair to say. We sue people for all sorts of things. You know, you trip on a cracked sidewalk in the city and you try to catch your check, right? You get into a car accident and you try to catch your check. Uh, it's, it's payday. And so we, we know one of the ways that people solve their problems without even, you know, trying to settle with one another uh, is to try to sue one another in court uh, to get paid. 
uh, not a good thing for worldly people to do, certainly not a good thing for Christians uh, to be doing. Uh, the Corinthian solution to conflict in the church appears to be, from our text, to just sue one another. Now, we see that that's the case, but what does the Bible instruct us to do? Thinking broadly about your knowledge of the Scripture, uh, if we're going to see that the clear implication of Paul's writing here is that we ought not to be suing one another. The Corinthians ought not to be suing one another uh, over these things. Uh, but thinking broadly about your knowledge of the Bible, if you have a conflict with another Christian in the church, how are you to deal with that? Matthew 18, yes, Matthew 18. If you don't have Matthew 18 memorized uh, as far as the, the steps and what it, can, uh, what it pertains to, every Christian is going to come into conflict with other Christians in the church. If you've been in the church for all of a week, you'll have somebody that you've gotten into a spat with over something probably relatively minor. How do you deal with that? And the answer is Matthew 18. And what's the first step that we are given in Matthew 18 concerning addressing conflict in the church? Is that the first step? No, you go, you go talk to them personally, privately, and you, you, you bring your concern to them, whether it's a sin against you directly, and you say, I, I, brother, I feel like you, you've sinned against me, this is what you said or you did, and uh, you know, I, I wanted to, to point this out and I ask you to, uh, to repent because it's you know, for your good, and then you offer forgiveness for that sin when it's repented of. If it's a sin just generally not against you but against God, uh, you need to do the same thing, pointing it out. Not in a you know, high and mighty way, but going humbly and seeking uh, to, to uh, inform this brother or sister of the sin that's in their life. I remember distinctly uh, one occasion when I was up in Maryland, uh, we had a, a member's family, uh, and I noticed their children were no longer coming to church, uh, and I inquired as to why, and it turned out that they were taking uh, language lessons. They were from another country, and uh, they wanted to reach back out into their heritage, and so they were learning Ukrainian or whatever it was. I don't remember the language now. Was it Greek? It was Greek. <laughs> My wife has a better memory than I do. Uh, and so I just asked him, like, I I is that really uh, the best thing to be doing for your children? Uh, speaking from personal experience where I was kept from public worship for years in the army because of my mission schedule and it was necessary, but it was not healthy. Uh, and so I exhorted him, as he was an older man, I didn't rebuke him, but I exhorted him of the importance of Lord's Day worship and bringing your family to sit under the preaching of the, uh, of the word and of prayer and the singing of the worship of God. And he received that very well. And we need to be willing to cross the uncomfortableness, the, the, the pain line, so to speak, uh, to point out uh, obvious sins in the, the lives of our brothers and sisters when we see it. It's, it's an act of love, not high and mighty coming and saying, I'm better than you and you need to do everything exactly the way I do it. Uh, but pointing out when there's clear violation, people are wandering from the law of God, to go in love and humility and encourage them uh, to repent. And this is the first step uh, of uh, instruction for how we deal with conflict in the church. We are to go privately to our brother or sister and point out their sin to them. Now, if that doesn't work, what is the second step? Yeah, you take two, one or two others, and you have a, a, a group of people, and it's not mob rule. You're not trying to get you know eight or ten or twenty people to say you know it's not it's not an intervention, right? It's you're not trying to you know pounce on the guy, but you take a, a godly brother or sister or two with you, and you you go and you say, hey, it's just it's not just me who sees this. It's not just my private opinion. Other people see it too, and we want to encourage you to to repent uh, and to do what God uh, expects you to do. And then the third step. What's the third step? 
you take it to the church. And as Presbyterians, we understand this not to mean that you go up to the pulpit Sunday before service and say, hey, you know what Bob's doing, you know, uh, don't do that. But you take it to the church, that is the representatives of the church, the, the elders that you have uh, uh, elected, the, the elders which God has ordained and appointed for your care. You take it to the church, that is the session, the elders. And you say, hey, you know, I, I had this issue, so this brother sinned against me, and I took two others, and he still wouldn't repent, so now I'm bringing it to the church. And I'd like your help in addressing this matter. And then the session uh, will address that issue uh, in a way appropriate according to biblical wisdom. And so there's a process. Now... Notice there's no fourth step there that says, well, if that doesn't work, take them to court. <laughs> it's not there. Uh, lawsuits are not part of Jesus' plan for handling conflict in the church, and so it shouldn't be part of our practice uh, either. So that's probably the most important passage concerning church conflict and how we are to deal with it, uh, but we also have this passage uh, before us uh, here, and that is uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 6. Now, that's what we should do, and we're seeing what the Corinthians are doing, and Paul needs to address this matter, and he's very concerned about these lawsuits, and we'll take a moment here, I think is a good time to use what Kirby does, which is to summarize the, the general sense and uh, the passage. Uh, could somebody summarize for us in one sentence, perhaps, what Paul's response to this issue is? How does Paul respond uh, concerning these lawsuits. He says, can we, we're going to judge Abram, so can we not judge yeah. matters here? Yeah, he's making a, a variety of different arguments using a lot of rhetorical questions, one of which is we're going to judge the world, we're going to judge angels, and so how much more should we be able to judge these smaller matters? That's one of the arguments he makes. And we're going to go through the variety of arguments he makes, but on the whole, if we were to capture... Paul's general response, I think verse 5 captures it best. You should be ashamed of yourselves. That, that's essentially what Paul says. He, he's writing to them, he's speaking to them to their shame. Uh, and what he means by this is he's trying to induce shame. There's, you know, we live in a culture that doesn't like shame, right? You know, uh, you know, shaming people is bad. But, but Paul here is very clear. They ought to be ashamed of these things. There is an appropriate, godly, biblical shame that comes when people, when Christians are sinning. And Paul would have them to feel and to know that shame. Not that they would linger in it, not that they would languish in it, but that being ashamed, they would then repent. And that's what Paul wants to accomplish by laying out the arguments uh, that he's going to lay. Uh, Christians should be ashamed of themselves, uh, when they sue one another over these trivial things, and they ought not to do so. There's a, a better way. There's a biblical way of handling conflict in the church. He starts off, Do you dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? What do you think? Do they dare? Do they dare? Yeah, they're doing it. They, they dare. They do dare. And that's the problem. This microphone's kind of in the way. They do dare, says, I've lost my spot, I apologize. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous 
Then he makes that the counterpoint instead of the saints. What's the implication? Saints are in a better position to judge. The saints are in a better position to judge. You dare go to the unrighteous? He's not saying that the, the judges over there are morally corrupt. Uh, he's just saying they're not Christian. They're not Christian. These aren't believers. You're taking uh, conflicts within the church between brother and brother, uh, and you're trying to lay them before a uh, secular or really a pagan court. You, you've got you know Roman uh, pantheon worshiping pagans, uh, and you want them to judge your dispute between two Christians? It's insanity instead of the saints. The implication is that they should be laying these cases before the saints. And then he asked the question, or do you not know? And he asked this several times, or do you not know, or do you not know? And this is a strong negative statement, which has a positive sense, which is, surely you know. You know, Paul's not allowing them to plead ignorance. Uh, he, he conceives of the whole issue as, uh, in this way, that these Corinthians know what follows, that the saints will judge the world. And then he goes on, if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? And so what kind of argument is this? I'm sure we got a lawyer or two in the room. What kind of argument is Paul making? Yeah, lesser to greater, maybe greater to lesser, depending on how you look at it, right? But he's making a comparison, and and he's saying, you're going to judge the world. You're going to judge angelic beings, and you can't judge these relatively trivial cases? And his point, he asked the question, really, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? That's a rhetorical question. What's the answer? You shouldn't be. (laughs) You shouldn't be incompetent to try trivial cases. Uh, The point is, you're able. He asks a little later, is there no one wise among you? And again, it's a rhetorical question. The whole point is, there are people within the church who are competent to do these things. Now, the question comes up, what does it mean judging the world, judging the angels? Uh, Where do we read about that in the Bible? Anybody have any guesses? It's not a doctrine we think about very often. Usually we think of judgment, we think of Christ returning, the resurrection of the dead, the judging of the living uh, and the dead, and there's a judgment of the righteous and the unrighteous, and uh, mostly we think of it in terms of Christ doing it. But the Bible does speak of the the saints participating in that. One classic text is Daniel 7.22, and it doesn't come out great in our English translation. There is some translation uh, debates there. Uh, But it it says that judgment is given for the saints, but it could also be translated given to the saints. And so this is one of the texts in which the early church understood that the the, the body of believers in the final judgment will participate uh, with Christ in that work. And so whether we understand that representatively or by way of delegation, the point is that uh, in the future there will be a final judgment and believers will participate in some way. And we don't have all of that spelled out for us, But we know that it's the case that we will participate uh, somehow in that judgment. And so if we are to judge the world uh, and of angels, here probably angels is not referring to judgment against, you know, the angelic host that serves God. Who's it in reference to likely? The fallen angels, right? Yeah, we're we're not going to enter into judgment against the the angels who have not fallen, but the ones who have fallen probably. Uh, And so uh, he's saying these are... Matters of great importance, of eternal significance, 
And you can't judge, what's he say, trivial cases, matters pertaining to this life. Surely we're competent to do these things. Well, the question then becomes to us, what exactly are these trivial cases? What are these matters pertaining to this life? You know, this is really the hard part about this text is what exactly is Paul talking about? And the reality is that he doesn't give us enough detail to know concretely exactly what sort of cases he's talking about. Uh, We know from other scripture that Paul is not saying that the church is to make judgment on all cases to the exclusion of uh, civil rulers. Romans 13 is very clear. Uh, they, they don't wield the sword in vain. There is a place for the civil magistrate to make uh, judgments concerning uh, various issues. Uh, and so I think practically in the, in the context of our modern day, things that ought not to be decided uh, exclusively by the church. They may have a role in it, uh, but so often the excuse for you know, the, the, the sexual abuse scandals, right? Well, we are trying to deal with it in the church. No, that, that, that is something very clearly in the realm of the civil magistrate. Uh, oftentimes spousal abuse, same thing. Uh, it is, it is a, a, a violent offense, and often it needs to be dealt with uh, by, not to the exclusion of the church, certainly, but not to the exclusion of the civil leaders either. Romans 13 makes it clear uh, that Criminal matters especially, criminal matters especially, uh, need to be brought uh, to the civil uh, authorities. Uh, And that doesn't mean you don't have the church's involvement at some level. Oftentimes it will be both interacting on this issue. Uh, But we don't ignore that God has established civil magistrates uh, to make judgments on many things pertaining to the Christian life. Serious uh, crimes, Uh, we might say uh, uh, criminal uh, capital offenses, things like that. But there's another level of cases uh, that uh, the church should make judgments about. And I I think the tendency in looking at the way people teach this text is to sort of caricaturize it. And they say, well, trivial cases here, probably Paul's talking about the color of the carpet, uh, the kind of coffee you make. Is it fair trade organic or is it Folgers? Red carpet or blue carpet? If it's red carpet, is it real red or is it burgundy or uh, what, what, what color specifically? Uh, you know, all sorts of examples. Maybe uh, the, the kinds of instruments you use in, in worship. Are these, these are the trivial things that, that Paul is talking about? And I think the answer is no. I mean, it's completely ridiculous to think that Christians in the early church Obviously, they weren't arguing about coffee or color of carpet or kinds of instruments, but it's completely farcical to think that Christians were dragging one another to church, or from church to the courthouse uh, to argue about truly inconsequential things like that, matters of indifference, a diaphora, things that are purely a matter of preference. That's not what Paul's talking about. So we don't, we don't want to exclude the civil authorities and they're making rule, uh, judgments about real issues, serious issues, capital offenses, criminal offenses, uh, you know, that sort of thing. But we also don't want to trivialize the situation and say they're, they're arguing about truly mundane things. There's something in between, though, I think. And likely what Paul is talking about here uh, is uh, things like property disputes, uh, breach of contract, uh, Christians in the community of Christians doing business with one another, and they're defrauding one another. And he uses that word a little later, actually. I I think that's probably what Paul is talking about. 
things that are pertaining to business uh, and contracts, property, and a whole host of other things, but especially uh, those things. Uh, thanks. Mm, yes. He's making a, an excursus. It's not unrelated to it. Uh, that, that is the case that has brought up the issue of judgment in the church. The, the church needs to make judgment concerning that particular moral issue. Uh, but it also needs to make judgments about all sorts of other things. And so he's making a, a general statement about other issues going on in the church. And he's kind of using the mother-in-law situation to, to springboard onto that before returning to the issue of sexual morality specifically again. And he's going to give a whole list of sins that give us a little bit of context of the sorts of things he might be talking about. Um, So the point is, these are things that have real costs, real consequences at stake for getting a a judgment in your favor or not in your favor. Maybe uh, you you lose out on some some wages owed. Uh, Maybe you lose a a business contract, uh, something like that. Maybe it deals with inheritance. Frequently in the ancient world, rabbis were ones who were to make judgments concerning familial inheritances, and this was perhaps uh, in mind uh, as well. Now, Things that really cost, really have consequences. Now, the question needs to be asked, though, why is this such a big deal to Paul? Why why does he care so much about this issue? What's what's at stake when two people, two Christians, go and seek judgment in a secular court from those who have no standing in the church? The reputation of Christ. Yeah, it's personal reputation, the church's reputation, but ultimately the reputation of Christ is at stake. Now, I want you to imagine a situation uh, where you're an unbelieving pagan judge, and two professing Christians come into the courtroom arguing about something like this, a property dispute, a contract dispute, uh, maybe an inheritance They profess to be sinners forgiven by grace. They profess to be heirs of an eternal kingdom, an inheritance unfading, kept for heaven. And they come before this secular judge, this pagan judge, and they're they're quibbling about, you know, 30 days labor, a year's labor, maybe a sizable sum of money. We don't know. How does that look? It looks tremendously worldly. Does it look like they really believe that they're heirs of an eternal kingdom and an inheritance kept unfading for them in heaven? They're squabbling over a day's wage or 30 days' wage or even a substantial size of money. It's worldly. And it, it, it militates against their profession. It makes it completely incredible in the... Uh, <laughs> Dr. McGoldrick hates the... the Y'all who've been here for a minute know Dr. McGoldrick. He hated the word incredible. Uh, I'm using it in the sense that he liked. It it makes your profession not credible. And that's why Paul is so greatly concerned about this issue. And that is why Paul purposely aims to arouse this sense of shame amongst the Christians. Now the question then becomes, what would Paul have Christians to do instead? And he gives us the principle in verse 7. And so 1 through 6 is the problem, and then verse 7 is the principle. 
To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a deep uh, defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Is that a hard principle? Is that a, an ideal that's difficult for us? I, I think it is. Now, I will point out that Paul doesn't actually make this an imperative. It's not actually a command. He doesn't give it that force, but the, the implication tends towards that direction. This is what Paul would have us do instead of suing one another in court before unbelievers he asked the question, why not rather be defrauded? Why not rather suffer wrong? Wouldn't that be better for the name of Christ and the reputation of the church and of your own individual gospel witness? He's not quite saying you can never sue Christians. There are times where that may be necessary, I think. But in principle, the ideal we aim for is that we should be very, 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 very reluctant to do so. Yeah, it's, it's very much a matter of the heart. I think of the, the, the instructions that are given concerning adultery. You know, why, why would they not, uh, uh, why, why were they made to divorce? Uh, it was because of their hardness of heart, right? So often that's the case. One of the big issues of lawsuits in the church obviously is divorce and, uh, and things pertaining to divorce. Uh, and Jesus' point in, in that instruction is not to give the, so much the, the, the confines of when you may or may not divorce. He's saying divorce at the end of the day is, 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 is an issue of an unrepentance, an unwilling, uh, unwillingness to repent, right? And in this situation, we're receiving another principle, which is you know, lawsuits are the result of being unwilling to suffer for Christ at some level, uh, to, to endure the wrong, to endure the shame, uh, even, know, even, even when you know you're being defrauded even when you know that the other guy is taking advantage of you. I think it's a very hard thing. But that is the instruction Paul gives us. It's not an absolute command. It is an ideal, but it is an ideal that we should aspire to. So often it's the case that Christians honor Christ best by willingly forgoing their rights but Paul has something else to say. And I'll come to your question in just a minute. But if you insist on arbitration, if you have disputes, where should you go? To the church. To the church. At very least, to the church first. Or at very least, consecutively. Uh, you know, sometimes divorce law gets really crazy, right, in America. And sometimes you go to the church and you don't get a lawyer and you lose everything because you didn't get a lawyer at the beginning. And so I'm not, again, not an absolute imperative, but there is an ideal, uh, and we need to be carefully considering what it is that we're being called to do in these cases. You had a question? What is the first amendment of the same church as you? Yeah, well, I mean, this is something the early church didn't have the problem with, if we're being honest. Uh, you know, in, in a Presbyterian uh, church government, which is, I believe, the biblical, I don't think it's just a matter of preference, but in a Presbyterian church government, when it's done right, there's connectionalism, right? And if somebody in one church has a dispute with somebody in the other church, then their elders can get together and work out a solution. There's communication, there's cooperation, uh, there's an organic connection in which uh, judgments can be made. And say you go to your individual church, and that judgment that the session gives is something that you want to appeal, you have a place to appeal it in the presbytery. If you don't know that, 
Hopefully none of you are under church discipline or coming under church discipline anytime soon. But know that if the session makes a judgment against you that you think is wrong, that they haven't heard all the witnesses and all the evidence and you haven't had an opportunity to defend yourself uh, according to, to, to due process, there is a court of appeals in the presbytery. You don't get that in congregationalism. You don't get that in independency. But Presbyterians have uh, presbytery sessions, sessions, presbyteries, general assemblies, and there's a, there's a court of appeal. And there's cooperation between churches, and so there is a, a place to handle that. If you're in a situation where you have a dispute between a, a brother or another Christian who's at another church, uh, oftentimes it is appropriate, I think, to still try to accomplish that, uh, though there's no obligation. And so oftentimes the other church will just ignore you. Uh, that's, that's one of the downsides of not doing things the way Jesus tells us to do it. Uh, if we were Presbyterian, properly speaking, in our government, there would be those connections between churches, and we wouldn't have rogue independent congregations who have no accountability to a broader court such as the Presbyterian General Assembly. So it gets hard, right? Uh, the best thing you can do is a Matthew, a Matthew 18, address them individually, bring some brothers, and then failing that, you bring it to the church, your church, perhaps their church as well, and you, you pray uh, that that works, but sometimes it doesn't, right? And uh, you know, that's the unfortunate reality of living in a fallen world. But that's what we're told to do when we operate based on what God tells us to do, not the pragmatics of what we think will work best given our situation. So why not rather be sort of defrauded and suffer wrong? Now it gets worse. So we know we have a court case, uh, a dispute between a brother. We're to bring, a, uh, bring it to our brother's attention first privately uh, and then with some witnesses and then to the church that is the session. Uh, and then barring that, we should uh, enter into disputes uh, with one. If we have disputes with one another, we bring it to the church. And if that doesn't work, Paul says, why not rather be defrauded? Why not rather be wronged? But it gets worse. This situation's a lot worse than this. He says, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Well, here's probably why they're going to pagan courts. One of them's guilty and he knows it and he thinks he's going to get a better judgment <laughs> from the unbeliever than he will the believer, the people who know him and know what he's about. He might chance to go to a pagan court because he expects they'll side with him perhaps. Uh, this, is, this is the problem. It's bad enough to have disputes. It's worse to bring your disputes to unbelievers. But worst of all, Paul says some of you are actually guilty of this. And that's a huge problem. You wrong your own brothers, you borrow and do not return, you promise and you do not pay. You slander, you gossip, you spread rumors and lies, and then you pretend to be the innocent victim before an unbelieving court in order to have your way. And that's a problem. Why do Christians sue one another over relatively minor things? Why do they bring shame on the church and on Christ? Is, is it because they're ignorant? Is it because they're ignorant? Not really. Not really. I'll come to your question in a minute, Aaron. Or if you have a response. Yeah. This isn't a specific case issue. It's it's a matter of identity. Who are you? Yeah. You're not of this world, but you're going into this world to resolve worldly issues. And that's really the wake up call. Yeah. 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 Resemble the world, and that's the question. Yeah. And that's the shame. Yeah. You should be ashamed. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. Did everybody hear that? It's an identity issue. It's not ignorance. It's not incompetence. 
its identity. Thanks for stealing my conclusion, by the way, Aaron. Very good. <laughs> That's exactly where I was going, but no, no, it's good. We want to lead people to the, to the right conclusions, right? It's an identity issue, and that's what Paul's going to get into. I think we're going to stop here. I was hoping to get a little bit further, uh, but we'll take up the, the remaining verses next time. But it is an identity issue. Who are you in Christ? What has he done for you? What will he do for you when you realize that there is an eternal inheritance, a kingdom that you are brought into Oh, it makes it so much easier to forego your right, to suffer wrong, to be willing to be defrauded. It's an impossible calling apart from Christ to do any of those things because the life is all about what can I get? How much can I accumulate? But when you realize that there's an eternal life, a life in heaven with Christ, we can do these things and we're called to do these things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which is instruction to us. We pray that by your spirit you would make us able to do what you call us to do, that you would make us humble and meek, that you would make us those who are willing to go to our brothers uh, to point out their sin and to seek reconciliation, Lord. We pray that you'd grant a spirit of repentance and humility to your people, uh, that you would cause us to dwell in peace and unity one with another. And when there are problems, Lord, we pray that you would make us a people who does what you call us to do. Would we take it personally? and then take witnesses, and then take it to the church elders. And would you grant uh, favorable, just judgments, Lord, uh, in these situations. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.